Hi there, this is Dennis Belko with Out Bureau. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode where we have conversations with LGBTQ professionals, entrepreneurs, and community leaders from around the world. Today, we are joined with Fabrice Hodard. He is a former staffer with the Human Rights Commission at the United Nations and now has taken on a challenging role, also working for international um, issues in the business space without leaders. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, Denise. And uh, I look forward to talking about the role of the private sector when it comes to LGBTI inclusion globally. Oh, well, that is a very large topic to unpack, you know? Um, so how about we just give a, a brief introduction, uh, if you could, uh, about yourself and about out leaders, and we'll dive right into that topic. Yeah, great. So, you know, I started my career at the World Bank as an economist, and I worked there uh, for a long period of time before I really started to get engaged on the question of the interconnection between development for LGBT people and sexual orientation and gender identity. And the idea is that, you know, our sexual orientation and our gender identity and the way society treats it kind of prevents us from experiencing fully development efforts. And that was kind of a big uh, topic to take on for the World Bank. And so for many years, the World Bank was slightly reluctant about acknowledging that sexual orientation and gender identity had a role um, in development. Uh, but eventually it did take on. And, uh, and today the World Bank is actually doing a lot of research on the impact of homophobia and transphobia, uh, not only on development, but actually on the economic um, performance of countries, of societies. Um, and it has, been, it has been a fascinating journey uh, to look at, at the World Bank research grow and grow Oh. And then around 2012, uh, I started little by little to become more and more vocal about the human rights of LGBT people. And the idea was that, really, if we want LGBT people to have access to a life of dignity and opportunity, we have to start tackling the immense discrimination and violence that they experience in most parts of the globe. And so naturally, that brought me to join the Office of the High Commissioner on Human Rights at the United Nations in 2016, uh, which I did. And, um, and, and for the four, four years I spent at the United Nations, I focused a lot on getting the private sector to understand that they had a human rights responsibility when it came to LGBTI people. Well, and the idea- That sounds like a huge task. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, since 2011, there is a growing understanding among companies that they have human rights responsibility. And in fact, you know, in 2011, the United Nations developed guidelines on business and human rights that outline what those responsibilities were. But the issue is that the vast majority of companies believe that they might have responsibilities when it comes to human trafficking or child labor, but they perceive sexual orientation and gender identity as being an issue of culture or being an issue of being nice. They don't see it in the same light that they would look at child support or child labor. 
So we wanted to reiterate the fact that there is no difference, that if you believe that you have a human rights responsibility, you cannot pick and choose which human rights you stand for. And so in, uh, in 2017, I co-wrote the United Nations guidelines for business on LGBTI issues, which basically were five principles that companies had to apply in order to be able to say, I am uh, aligning my business practice with human rights of LGBTI people. And to date, it's the largest social responsibility initiative uh, when it comes to LGBTI issues, because I think more than 350 of the world's largest companies have expressed support for those standards. Indeed, LGBT people face what the independent experts at the United Nations on sexual orientation and gender identity describe as a vortex of discrimination and violence. And sometimes it's very easy for us to pay particular attention to issues of arbitrary execution of LGBT people, like it happened in the past in places like Iran or places where LGBT people have, have, have uh, faced uh, death penalty. Right, and that, and, that still, and that still happens today. Yeah. And, you know, well, where I mean, it, you know, numerous... To be, to be perfectly fair, uh, few people have been executed because of their sexual orientation and gender identity uh, in the context of applying the death penalty. But they face extrajudiciary killings, like happened in, in Chechnya. You know, there is a great documentary now that is running on HBO called Welcome to Chechnya, that, that is kind of an harrowing tale of what LGBT people have faced in Chechnya. But what I love to say is that, you know, for, for all the horror of uh, state-sponsored violence against LGBTI people like we experienced in Chechnya and we continue to experience in Chechnya, there is uh, maybe more pervasive uh, violence that is done against LGBT people around the world which is that there is hundreds of millions of children that go to bed every night, you know, lying to their parents, lying to their teachers, lying to their priests about what they experience, you know, which is that, that attraction to people of the same sex or non-conforming gender identity. And they cannot talk to anybody about it for an extended period of time. And at night, they pray their God to wake up a different person in the morning. And if you add, you know, those years of suffering, of silent suffering on the part of children, that has a gigantic impact that then permeates in their adult life. You know, Absolutely. that permeates their self-confidence, that permeates in their ability to function uh, as an adult. And that is kind of, in a way, the, you know, Chechnya is the tip of the iceberg of the suffering of LGBTI people. And, uh, and to me, that's where the private sector has a responsibility, is that you cannot believe that LGBTI people, after having, after having experienced years of self-hatred and also of violence from society that tell them that they are not okay, that they are going to come in the workplace without the baggage of everything that society has done to them in childhood and their teenage years. And therefore, 
That is to me the reason why companies have to make a special effort to ensure that LGBTI people feel that they belong in the workplace so that they have a shot at fulfilling their potential. And, and to me, that's pretty crucial because, you know, that discrimination that happened in childhood is subtle. But it is, it's, not because it's, not, it's not because it's subtle that it's not incredibly damaging and incredibly violent. I mean, you know, I have two little boys that are seven years old. And the idea that my boys would hide from me something as fundamental as the personal suffering of feeling that you are not okay, that they would hide it from me is heartbreaking. And yet, that the reality of most of LGBT children around the world, even today in 2020. Yes, you, you are uh, absolutely correct and spot on there. And uh, so uh, I'm glad you really clarified, you know, there are major atrocities and ongoing, but um, you're absolutely correct in the, those uh, small, seemingly small to perhaps other people get long lasting, long, long pervasive um, suffering can cause major damage. And yeah, yeah. and I, you know, I think that one of the best kept secrets is that most of the violence and the discrimination happens in the family and at school. You know, very often we like to imagine that homophobia and transphobia is something that happened in the street. You know, or that it is something that happened in the stadium, or that it's something that happened in the workplace. But in fact, statistics show that most of the violence and the discrimination happens at home from family members. And so that creates a, a, a very difficult problematic, which is that if we want to tackle homophobia and, and transphobia, we have to create social change all over society, right? And so that, so that children, LGBT children, grow up like their heterosexual peers is in an environment that values them and in an environment that supports them. And that's where, to me, the role of the private sector is crucial, is that when you talk about this fundamental social change in society, you know, to create that social change, even though we don't have an exact recipe, we know that it takes gigantic efforts from all parts of society, and we know that it takes a lot of resources. And the private sector has kind of this neutral voice in which through marketing, through uh, the way it shapes culture, it can have a very positive impact on human rights of LGBTI people. And you know, what I love to tell uh, business leaders is that it's pretty rare that you get the opportunity to have a positive impact on society. You know, uh, and on LGBTI issues, you have that opportunity. So why wouldn't you take every opportunity you can identify to contribute to a world where this completely unnecessary discrimination disappears? And, uh, and you know, that, that's why we have a fifth standard in the standard of conduct, which is acting in the public sphere, in which we tell companies that they should take every opportunity that they have to contribute to social change in the markets in which they operate. Absolutely, and one of the one of the I find unique things 
supporting the as as a uh, private sector business is supporting the LGBT community and your employees and your customers. What is so wonderful and an opportunity is that the LGBT community spans all others. So uh, you have African American or people from African descent, people from Polynesian descent, people from Indian descent, from races and ethnicities from all over the globe. Uh, religion diversity from all over the globe. Uh, so it's uh, yeah. backgrounds, and, and you're, cultures. You're pointing, you're pointing out to something that is essential too, which is that so far, and this is usually what happens in any social movement, the progress that we have achieved has uh, benefited the most privileged. You know, people like me that tend to be English-speaking, white gay men in urban areas. Those are the people that have done the best in terms of inclusion in society, in terms of financial success, in terms of dignity. And now the question is, how do you ensure that you expand those benefits to the entire community? Meaning the most marginalized, you know, the poor, uh, people that, uh, that have, you know, non-conforming gender identity, and people that are outside of urban areas and outside of the most tolerant uh, countries. Now that also creates a problematic, which is that the rich white gay men that had been driving the movement, you know, sometimes do not find the desire to continue fighting for the rest of the population. And you know, one of the things that I was talking about in the past few days is that I read the last uh, report from uh, the Movement Advancement Project uh, map that showed that, you know, only in the United States, only 17,000 gay people give more than $1,000 to, to some of the 40 most important LGBTI organizations. And then only 450 people give more than $25,000 uh, mm -hmm. to those 40 top organizations in the U.S. Now, if you look at that, that's a tiny number compared to the immense wealth that exists in our community. And, uh, you know, I'm on the board of, of seven nonprofits that most of them are actually working towards uh, specific progress on LGBTI issues for specific communities. So as an example, I'm on, I'm on the board of Housing Works, which works for... Um, uh, housing for the most marginalized in our community. I, uh, I'm on the board of, uh, I'm the president of the board of Witness to Mass Incarceration, which is an organization that tries to uh, end mass incarceration of LGBT people uh, in the United States. Um, you know, and all of those organizations are kind of struggling financially. And so what is difficult is to make the case to those who have experienced most of the benefits of LGBTI equality, that they have a debt toward our community and that they have to continue to fight to ensure that the progress we have experienced is shared by all of us. And you know, what you point, what you point out when you talk about intersectionality is that uh, at this point, only a small percentage of us have access to that life of dignity and opportunity we all desire.
when I was uh, when I was at the World Bank, um, I, I had a friend in Washington D.C. that called uh, LGBTI rights the canary in the coal mine. And what he said is that usually when there is a degradation of LGBTI inclusion or lack of LGBTI inclusion, it tends to be a signal that there is a degradation of the entire human rights environment. And it's kind of fascinating today because, you know, the countries I'm paying the most attention to uh, today are, you know, Poland and Hungary in Europe, in which there is uh, 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 state-sponsored homophobia. And what you see is that this is part of a wider degradation of human rights in the country, which, you know, includes freedom of expression, freedom of movement, uh, you know, uh, opposing parties being persecuted. It tends to be the signal of things to come. And, and, you know, that's something that, you know, I, I wanted to repeat a lot when we were very much focusing on Chechnya, is that the situation of LGBTI people was taking place in a wider context of human rights violation. You know, there was no concentration camp for LGBT people. There were jails where not only LGBT people were being tortured, but journalists and political opponents were being tortured. So the, usually it's a very good signal, including in a company, that when you see that LGBT people are not being paid attention to or are not being included, that usually you will find that there is a bad track record on race, that there is a bad track record on gender, that there is no self-ID for veterans. You know what I mean? That usually it's a sign that it's a company that believe, oh, I can do business without paying attention to the individuals that uh, are part of my business. And I think, you know, increasingly, people are making the difference between a good employer, you know, by, show, by looking at signs like diversity and inclusion programs, and an employer that only sees in you uh, potential profit. Understand. Well, that is a wonderful segue so Fabrice, uh, how about we focus a little bit on some of the, the positive impact, the positive push and pressure uh, that the employees and consumers play in the private sectors for, uh, for, for helping companies kind of see the light and move towards more uh, equality and inclusion. Uh, what yeah. have you seen from your experience on, on how that plays? Well, I, you know, I think that it's, it's widely accepted that in many places in the world, people feel that they do not find agency in the democratic process for a wide variety of reasons. And so they have been looking at agency as consumers, employees, and stakeholders, and shareholders, I mean, and, and investors. And, you know, what they have discovered is that they can indeed influence the way companies behave on social issues as employees, consumers, and investors. So, you know, a great example that came to mind is when there was a racial incident at Starbucks, you know, the, the consumers put so much pressure on Starbucks that Starbucks said, oh, I'm closing all of my uh, cafes for 
one day and I'm going to give a, a racial training. And the reason is because they knew that, uh, that, that it would have a huge consequence on their business if they didn't. Mm -hmm. Similarly, the story of Barilla in Italy is fascinating, right? Guido Barilla made a very misguided uh, statement about what constituted a family and the backlash was gigantic. And that led uh, Barilla on a journey to become one of the most inclusive organ, uh, you know, private companies when it comes to LGBTI people. Um, and then similarly, you know, as employees, you see that the walkout at Google or at Facebook by employees tend to have a, a direct impact on which contract uh, the organization fulfills its behavior when it comes to uh, community standards. And, uh, you know, there is a fear of employees walking out of your building. And then I would say that increasingly, and it's much more subtle, you kind of have to pay attention, but increasingly investors, uh, uh, people as investors are putting pressure on companies. And, uh, you know, at, at investors meetings, they will ask, what is the track record of companies on social issues? Um, so that creates a very positive pressure on companies. And in many ways, it is what is changing the world. Uh, because companies then want to show to their consumers, to their employees, and to their investors that they are on the right side of the equation, that they are actually trying to contribute to a better world. And uh, we saw that a lot during the COVID-19 crisis, in which companies, you know, LVMH, that manufacture usually uh, perfume, shifted a lot of its factories to make hand sanitizers. Or similarly, you know, uh, Starbucks decided to close all of its stores to ensure that its employees would not be uh, at risk. You know, increasingly, we see that companies are now proactively trying to send a message to consumers, employees, and investors, I share your value. And so, you know, I have a belief that capitalism might be morphing uh, for the better uh, because of that. Of course, you know, you, you have to imagine it in a world where there is two opposing forces, because there is also a lot of investors that only care about profit and that are putting huge pressure on companies to take all of their decisions based on how to maximize dividends. And then on the other hand, you have employees, consumers, and investors that have a conscience that our world is at a crossroad that are putting pressure on the companies. And so the question is, who is going to win? Is it the pressure of those who want to maximize dividends or the pressure of those who want companies to be contributing to a more sustainable world? Uh, and we are kind of we are kind of on the on the bench looking at those at those forces at play, uh, and it is my hope that uh, you know what we are going to see is a capitalism that is more sustainable and that is looking less at the short term bottom line and more at how it can contribute to a sustainable world. I think it's essential to say that companies are not either good or bad; they tend to have kind of complex, neat track record. And, and I will tell you, you know, my, uh, my, my office, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, was very close to a big uh, uh, software company that is doing incredibly well 
when it comes to human rights. And so they always studied it as a champion and as a company uh, that, that which example should be followed. But, you know, on the other hand, that company has been lobbying for tax reform that is only furthering inequality. And so the great difficulty is how do you make sense of a company that is championing human rights, but, has, but, but is basically evading taxes and trying to create deeply entrenched laws that, uh, that, that relieve tax pressures on companies, you know? And, and I love to say that tax evasion leads to violation of human rights. It actually prevents people, often the most marginalized, to access health services and education services that are their human rights. I and so I have never found a perfect company. Uh, you know, I have found many companies that are, that are not very good, uh, but it tends to be a mixed track record. And so one of the key aspects, which I think, Denise, we kind of discussed last time we were on the phone together, is how do we as LGBT people differentiate between companies that are just doing the superficial rainbow float for uh, pride, but that are, you know, have a horrible track record on, uh, on the environment or on labor, or are actually not supporting our rights in a meaningful manner, uh, versus companies that are actually doing efforts and that are actually having an impact. And that's, that's, an ex that's a big challenge for us as employees, as consumers, as investors, to not get fooled by the gigantic public relations machine behind those companies and to make a difference between those that are doing the hard work and those that are just paying lip service to LGBT rights. It is essential, and I have to tell you that even when you are in the middle of it, sometimes it is very difficult to understand exactly what's happening behind the doors of the company and exactly whether the commitment is superficial or it's in depth. And, and, you know, I would love if you are okay with that, Denise, to give you a few examples. Sure. You know, if you take Starbucks, incredible champion for marriage equality in the United States. And yet, as soon as they were under attack from a Muslim cleric in Indonesia, they did a press release in which they said, we do not stand for any ideology. Instead of saying, you know, we, we are not pushing marriage equality in Indonesia, but we stand for human rights for all. You know, how is a consumer of Starbucks going to know what's happening in Indonesia, particularly when the press release is done in the local language, right? It is very difficult for uh, the layman to understand what is going on. I'll give you another example, which is a very well-known telecommunication company that is a big donor to the Trevor Project. That on the other hand, through its corporate packs, has been funding an administration that is clearly anti-LGBT, you know, based on uh, based on, 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 on the law that they are pushing, you know, and they said to us, they said, well, you know, you know better than anybody how supportive we are of the community. But frankly, if you are going to give us less money to defend our rights, that we are, you are giving money to fight our rights, there is the question that you and I discussed, Denise, of what is your LGBT footprint? Are you actually damaging us or are you actually supporting us? And I'll give you a short example, which is, you know, the Miami Dolphins in, uh, in Miami, you know, have been generous to some extent with local organizations, but it's in drop in the bucket 
compared to the amount of money that they channel to their owner, Stephen Roth, who then is supporting an administration that is fighting us. And so I think we have to be extremely careful in not giving away the pro-LGBT label to companies that are actually throwing us under the bus. And, uh, you know, I think there is room for an organization like Out Bureau to provide guidance to consumers, to provide guidance to employees, and to provide guidance to investors about who are our friends and who are not, or even better, to equip them to make demand from their companies that they stop getting in the way of social change, and that instead they support our fight. Because our suffering is real. Discrimination and the violence that we experience is sufficiently large that we should not give away the LGBT sticker for nothing. In exchange, and we need support. Absolutely. And that's why, uh, and that is why I thought it was so important that when it comes to an an employer's out bureau rating, it's not me. It's actually the employee who are rating the employer. So it's actually the voice of the employee. And who better to know the employer from the inside than the current and recent past employees. So that is currently the rating. Now, is we, have your, tremendous, is, we have tremendous power because continuously, I have seen company behavior being affected by the feedback they get from consumers and employees. I mean, you know, a very good example is the example we already discussed of Barilla, right? Barilla only engaged on this tremendous journey to become supportive of the LGBT community after it became very clear that it would have long-term consequences. And, you know, one of the things that I learned, which is fascinating, is that when a company is anti-LGBT, and there is a call for boycott. It usually does not affect the companies in the short term. It affects the company in the long term, meaning that it will affect growth prospects. Because, you know, over time, people will become more reluctant to purchase the products. Investors will become more reluctant to buy the stock. And, um, you know, a good example in the United States is that there was a call for boycott of Equinox and SoulCycle because of the fact that the owner of the company was very supportive of the administration. And as you know, those are two gyms that are particularly supported by LGBT clients. Yes. In the short term, the the consequences were not huge, but what is certain is that in the long term, it is a huge comparative disadvantage with the other competitors to be marked as the gym that is not supportive of LGBT rights. And so, you know, I believe that every time we use our collective power, not only are we honoring what, our, uh, what the, the first fighter for LGBTI rights did, but we are basically taking a stand to improve the lives of our brothers and sisters that are the most marginalized and that are the most affected by homophobia and transphobia. So, you know, I, I love the work that you do, and I think it is crucial to provide more and more information to LGBTI people and their allies, because their allies are probably even more numerous than LGBTI people, on who they should work for, 
where they should spend their money and where they should invest their retirement funds. Absolutely. And I'll throw one more uh, example in there, very well known here in the United States. Uh, lots of uh, media in the LGBTQ media and um, mainstream media was Chick-fil-A. So similar to the Barilla, uh, the Chick-fil-A CEO made a very negative um, uh, comment and it still impacts them today. Um, just last year, they were trying to get a franchise into a uh, British airport and the uh, and it's happened here in the U.S. as well, where the, the airport uh, governing body said, no, we don't want you here because you stand for inequality. And so, you know. Yeah, and you know, sometimes people are like, well, you know, that, that's unfair to use uh, capitalism as a tool to push your values. And, you know, my response to that is that every time an LGBTI child here, you know, is, uh, is people being criticized on television or his family being discredited. You know, every time that happens, that has a direct link to the number of calls of suicidal youth that the Trevor Project received. So it is not so much about, you know, being capricious. It's about the fact that if you are, if you are not fighting the situation of apartheid that LGBTI people experience, then you are complicit of it. And there is no way I am going to spend my money or invest my retirement with a company that is complicit of the situation of apartheid that LGBTI uh, people experience. So we should have no shame into making sure that Chick-fil-A does not get a penny from LGBTI people and their allies. And to that person who would say uh, that comment, I, I, my, my rebuttal is, are you kidding? Utilizing our values and utilizing what affects me and my life and my family is exactly what capitalism is, right? Because it's, it's me making the choices as a consumer of who I'm going to purchase. It doesn't put you out of business. You still have the ability to make your hamburgers, make your coffee, make whatever you're making, and you still have consumers. But I have the power as the consumer to make my choices on where I spend my money, and that is capitalism. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, if, if, we, uh, if we step back for a minute and we look at the effect of the pandemic, we look at rising inequalities, which were just denounced by the... Uh, by the Secretary General of the United Nations. We look at systemic racism and the, and the fact that we have taken very small dent into it. We look about the Me Too, Me Too movement that shows that women are still disrespected in the workplace. All of those are indications that humankind is at a crossroad. Are they going to take the right uh, path, which is the path towards more equality, towards a more fair world, towards a world that is more sustainable? Or are we going to take the left path, which is basically running into the world? And because we are at that crossroad, it's more important than ever that we are very careful about, particularly as privileged people that have agency, that have power, spending power, investment power, you know, that we, we are very careful about how we use that power. And that, you know, very often when I was at the UN, young LGBTI people would ask me, what is the first thing I can do to be supportive 
And I would say, you know, look where you're buying clothes from. You know, that's where there is child labor. That's where there is environmental damage, you know. And, and by making informed choices when you're buying, when you're buying you, you are probably, that's where you have the most power. You know, I talk to a lot of companies that, that feel that they are fine. You know, I mean, I remember, you know, a, a few years ago when I would talk to companies in the cosmetic industry, they would say, well, we have a lot of gay people. Um, having a lot of gay people is not a sign of equality. In fact, some of those companies in the cosmetic industry or in the luxury industry that indeed have a, a, a high prevalence of uh, LGBT employees, uh, when you interview those LGBT employees, they report a lot of discrimination. And, you know, one of the things that I tell to companies that tell me, you know, we don't really need to make progress on those issues because everybody is equal within the world of our company, is that I say that when you look at the statistics of who is in senior management, who is in the C-suite, who is on the board of companies, it is abysmal when it comes to LGBT people. In fact, one of my favorite talking points is that you can pretty much count on two hands the number of out lesbians at the top of business in the world. There is Shamina Singh uh, here in the U US at MasterCard. There is Gigi Shao in Hong Kong. There is Best Ford at Lando Lex. But it is incredibly small, particularly when you compare it to the number of gay men at the top of business. And those are signs of discrimination you cannot ignore. It's like the nose in the middle of the face, right? Similarly, I just did a survey of the boards of Fortune 500 companies. You have 5,670 seats on the board of directors of the Fortune 500 companies. Do you know how many of the seats are occupied by openly LGBT people. 24. 24. 24 out of 5,670. Wow. Now, you know, a few of them are, you know, maybe two or three are occupied by Tim Cook of Apple. I think three are occupied by, by Beth Ford at Lando Lex. Then you have a few other people, kind of equally lesbians and gay men. And that's it. And, you know, this is not, uh, uh, this is not strange. You know, what we show is that people that are in power are fine with equality as long as it doesn't threaten the way resources and power is shared. You know what I mean? They, they are fine with equality as long as they keep the power and the resources for themselves. So as you can imagine, the board of directors of companies shape the future of our world. It is also very lucrative position. It is very prestigious position. And therefore, people are much less willing to open this position to LGBT people. So we still have an incredible long way to go. And so when companies are telling me we have finished our journey towards inclusion, I'm usually suspicious. Uh, and the other aspect which you point out too is that we have to be very uh, cautious in ensuring that LGBT issues are not used as a way to hide more problematic issues. What I mean by that is that it is so much easier to have the float that you describe at Gay Pride or the Gay Pride event 
than it is to solve issues such as fair labor or, uh, or uh, uh, maybe the, the, the environment. You know, I'll give you one example, which is Uber. Uber is very supportive of LGBTI issues. Now their human rights track record is terrible. You know, they have beat driver, Uber drivers against taxi drivers in many places in the, wo in the world, you know, including the developing world, you know, letting drivers face violence in order to penetrate the market. You know, similarly, they are known as not giving any protection in terms of social benefits to their drivers. So they, they, that's not a coincidence that they will be extremely supportive of LGBTI rights, you know, to hide uh, things that are taking place behind their, wall, behind their walls. And I will tell you, because I spent so much time at the United Nations talking to companies, I quickly came to differentiate between two types of companies, which are mature companies that really want to contribute to a better world, that have understood that with the privilege of making profits come great responsibility. And then there is an entire group of companies in which I will put, you know, Uber and, um, you know, a lot of new companies like Facebook and that are much more concerned about using reputation as a way to maximize profit. They do not see the responsibilities that they have. I mean, in my opinion, it comes with uh, their age, right? The younger the company, the least it understands that it's not so much about making profit than it is about playing a social role. And so what we have to do is that we have to keep those companies accountable. You know, we have to tell Facebook, you know, it's super cute that you have this rainbow filter around you. But as LGBT people, we also want you not to use your platform to oppress LGBTI people with your community standards. You know, similarly, we have to tell Uber, you know, it's great that you're LGBT friendly, but what is the experience of your driver? when it comes to security, when it comes to benefits, when it comes to access to healthcare? And those are important questions. I have to tell you that when I wrote the standard, I used to have a joke that I would make in private in which I said, the first companies to support the, the standard were the, the financial companies because they created the economic crisis of 2008. Then you had the consumer goods companies because they are poisoning us one by one. And finally, you had the extractive industry because they are destroying the world little by little. And you know, it was a joke, but it kind of reflected the reality, which is that British Petroleum is a huge champion of LGBT rights for a very clear reason, which is that their environmental track record is abysmal. And so we have to pay attention as LGBT people that we are not throwing, you know, uh, uh, the workforce of those companies or the environment under the bus to push for LGBTI equality. We have, we have to tell companies, you know, we are looking at, you know, your corporate social responsibility as the combination of being supportive of marginalized communities, but also at ensuring the well-being of your employees and at ensuring that you are not destroying the environment and, in fact, that you are contributing to the fight against climate change. And, and that is difficult, but the truth is that we have to find uh, platforms like Out Bureau in which employees can share information so that you know, information will give us power as consumers, as employees, and as investors.
to a conclusion for our talk, which is about our individual responsibility. And I think that as queer people, we are special people. We have experienced tremendous suffering and discrimination over the centuries. And so it was never so much as to make a place under the sun for us individually than as collectively, you know, contribute to a world that is more supportive of everybody, all marginalized communities. And I think that's what we have been discussing for this entire hour, Denise, is that as queer people, because, you know, the, the fact that we can openly talk on Zoom about this topic, we owe it to the people, to the people before us. We now have a depth of individual responsibility to contribute to a better world for the next people, for the part of our community that is marginalized, for incarcerated people, for people that are facing racial injustice. Because our fight was never about making a comfortable life for ourselves. It was about ending a world of oppression and unfairness. And, um, you know, I think that there is nothing I would, I would have rather um, finished our talk on than this, which is that we need to reflect about our individual responsibility. We need to reflect about our power and we need to apply it in a way in which we are contributing to a better world at a time where human right, humankind is clearly at a crossroad. I could not agree more. What a fantastic conversation, Fabrice, that we've had. Um, and this hopefully won't be the last. No, so, not at all. And, and, you know, uh, I love I love your platform. I love what you're doing, and I cannot I cannot thank you enough uh, for having welcomed me this morning. Uh, well, likewise, I was looking quite forward to our conversation, and I'm sure everyone has enjoyed it. So you have thank a wonderful you so rest of your day and week. Bye bye. I took you soon, Denise. Bye bye. Ciao. <laughs>